continue to worship. We want to celebrate in spirit and truth, worship in spirit and truth, understand and hear from you in spirit and truth. And so we ask that you would grant us that great grace and loving kindness. Um, Lord, we've fallen short. We've all battled the flesh in one way or another this week, and surely there have been losses. I pray that you'd forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I pray that you would uh, assure us of your pardon in Jesus that we remember this weekend. I pray that this empty tomb would be good news to all that hear of it. That we would understand the depths and riches of your grace and mercy here. So I pray that you'd speak to us now and teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. In contemplating the empty tomb, the resurrection of our Lord, how do we do so anew? How do we do so not in a new way, but refresh our zeal, refresh our excitement, refresh our joy, cause us to praise Him again for this very thing? I think I want to go back. Uh, it's kind of been uh, the theme this weekend is going back to see that our sovereign Lord has planned all this, that the creation of the world and subjecting, as Romans 8 says, creation to futility, to the things that we endured, fell to, and walk in, uh, we're seeing that God is displaying to the universe a desire for us to not only know simply His his power, uh, righteousness, justice, wrath. But I think the main reason is that we would know and that he could dispense his riches and grace and mercy to kind of round out, to show the whole universe the complete view of his character and how that all works together. And so we meditated for a minute Friday night when Peter begins to speak at the day of Pentecost and now Peter recognizes and he communicates to all those around that, look, Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And then how amazing that really is, that this is, this is God's sovereign plan to move forward in. That he's creating a world with, in view of having to redeem that world by the, the death of his son, the sacrifice of his son who was pure in every single way, involved in a loving relationship with him since before there was a thing as, uh, such a thing as the beginning. And so I want to go back to Isaiah 53 today. Some people call it the fifth gospel. I think that's very true. And when you read Isaiah 53, and if you were to kind of trick yourself and tell yourself that this wasn't Isaiah, this was just some chapter in the Bible, that you may think that it was coming from the gospels. That's how clear it is about what we see in the Gospels as Jesus moved towards the cross. 
But one thing Isaiah 53 does is detail the point of all that, right? So you can kind of read it as a commentary about the passion narrative. It's, it's telling us why it was the Lord's will to crush him and, and, and what Jesus was looking forward to under that plan and, and what that has done for all those who are affected by that plan. So I, I think one easy way to put it is just Isaiah 53 is awesome, right? It's amazing. Actually, you go back to Isaiah 52 and verse 13 and you kind of start this commentary on the passion narrative. But it's, it's really important for us to understand Jesus on the cross and Jesus resurrected as uh, something completely different than a get-out-of-hell-free card or situation. Something much deeper than that. He, he removed the wrath of God from us, which is really incomprehensible. But also what's incomprehensible is what He bestowed upon us after removing that wrath. And I mentioned Paul this morning outside. Paul cannot help himself but kind of veer off into these gospel meditations and these kind of gospel moments of praise and reflection when he's writing his letters because it's always mind-blowing to him. It's, it's, it's always valuable to him. It always means more to him than anything else. The, the gospel is what Paul always has in mind. In fact, he tells us that he assumes to know nothing among the, I believe it was the Corinthians he was talking to, except Christ and Him crucified. That's all he's assuming to know. Because that's all that's really going to matter for their soul, their life, And so he gives that at any moment, always using that as an example, always bringing that back to that foundation. But I want to look at Isaiah 53, 10 through 12 here, to look at those things. Why this took place on Good Friday, uh, what, what, what Jesus is looking forward to come Sunday morning, and then what that means for us to look forward to. So look at uh, verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. God's will, good and perfect will, is to crush him. Put him to Grief or make him heart sick in these things. Understand that, please, for a moment. Understand that, that Jesus is the only begotten, the only beloved, the only one who perfectly loves back the Father, and it's his will to crush him. Now, he does that in light of of the second half of verse 10, right? That he knows he's going to see his offspring, that he shall prolong his days. He knows 
that he's going to vindicate his sacrifice, and Jesus knows that his sacrifice is going to be vindicated, accepted, that there's glory to come, that it, this isn't just a, just a one-off thing and see you later, Jesus. No, he knows the love of the Father. He's always existed eternally in the love of the Father, in the love of the Godhead, and so he understands God's perfect plan ends with goodness. That's what we forget. That's what, that's what the disciples forgot on Good Friday. And we would be right there with them. In fact, we still do that. We get into circumstances or situations or trouble and we, we just don't know how good comes from that. We're put to grief. We're, we're distraught. We're in sorrow. Where does rejoicing come in? That's why it's always taught to us by the, by the apostles that we always have room to rejoice. The final word hasn't been spoken yet. The final hour hasn't happened. And we praise God because it will. And that means some marvelous, extremely glorious things for those that know why he was crushed and who hope in the fact that he was resurrected. And so, like we left Friday night, we wait in faith on him who promises, because his will is always to do good. Even though in this extreme example, extreme to us, it's Jesus who is going to be crushed. He becomes that offering for guilt, right? He becomes that sacrifice on the mercy seat, that blood that's sprinkled, that uh, does more than bulls and goats and rams. It, it, it cleanses once for all the sins of His people. It's effective to the eternal degree. There is no more need day and night to perpetually make these sacrifices and to go again into the holy place and sprinkle the blood because Jesus has entered the holy place by His blood, and has made atonement payment for our sins under the wrath of God, and you don't even have to know what that is. Some of you might, if you don't um, understand and see and receive by the grace of God His, His offering for your guilt. But for those of you who do, you're going to see what Jesus sees. You're going to see a prolongment of days, as in eternal days. Eternal days. But this is an interesting phrase here, talking about the fact that he shall see his offspring. It's really important to understand, okay, that, that Jesus becomes, through his life, through his obedience to the Father, he becomes the only legitimate offspring of God. Israel is not a legitimate offspring of God. Jesus is true Israel because he perfectly fulfills the law. So here's the offspring, singular. Something that uh, Paul understands in Galatians. The promises are all made to the offspring in the singular. We're talking about the Son. But 
Here in Isaiah 53, it says, He shall see his offspring. There's a, there's a plural play on this that invites people into the righteousness, into the um, sufficiency of his singular offering for guilt. And in fact, you find in Romans 5, I think believe, starting in verse 15, that, that, that Jesus, you know, we sang, uh, he's the true and better Adam. Adam, right, comes in and he ruins it all for us, right? Way to go, Adam. Okay? And so it brings death to all. Now, Jesus comes in. And he doesn't do what Adam does. And what's that bring? Life to all who would believe in his name. He makes the many righteous. This is, this is kind of the idea through the whole Bible. Is that you have this suffering servant in Isaiah. You have this, this blessed man in Psalm 1. Uh, you have kind of the promise of this great offspring in Genesis um, from Abraham. You, you have the one who's going to sit eternally on the throne of David. You have him doing something for a large number of people. When you get to the book of Revelation, you find that they're kind of, you can't number them. Fulfilling the promise that was made to Abraham, it's only fulfilled in Jesus that through him, your offspring are more numerous than the sand of the seashore. But you have to go through him. Otherwise, you don't get righteous people. Like they have to be created, they have to be birthed through him. That's why Jesus tells Nicodemus, look, you have to be born again. That's why Jesus tells Peter when he's washing feet with his last moments on earth, think about that, while he's washing feet with his last moments on earth, he tells Peter, if I don't wash you, you have no part in me. So we have to go through Jesus. The promise is through Jesus. If you don't enter through him, then you don't enter. That's the gate to the sheepfold. If you want to be one of his sheep, then you go through that gate. Only in Christ. That's why the uh, apostles say in Acts 4, there is no other name under heaven named among men by which you must be saved except that of Jesus. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. That is kind of legal language that makes Jesus the executor of the will of God. He's passed to him. Right? The, his desires and his plans, and Jesus carries them out perfectly. This is something Adam couldn't do. This is something you and I couldn't do. And this is Jesus' food, he says, right, to his disciples. He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me, period. He lives on that. He breathes that. He is set on that. That is his great desire and hunger and thirst every single day that he lives. And so what's going to happen if that's his complete and absolute and perfect desire? It's going to prosper. How did it prosper? Well, FBC Holt exists because it prospered. The, 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 the propagation or the expansion of the gospel throughout history, despite what comes against it, is the prospering of the will of the Lord in his hands. 
The ability for him to say on the cross, it is finished, is the prospering of the will of God in his hands. Which kind of flies in the face of some of the theology that America gets today that says actually prospering means you will be well liked and well paid and your health will be well. There's a, there's a prospering that transcends anything that we experience here. Because you have to remember, from the very beginning, God's great desire is to dwell with His people. The problem is, we were a people that really want nothing to do with that. Because we desire to take for ourselves the knowledge of good and evil, and therefore completely uh, miss the boat when it comes to defining what good is. We're not the source of good. We can't define it. Only God can. So when we try and define good in our own terms, it's exactly the opposite. And, and so God is rich in mercy, and so He's, he's not going to let us uh, exist eternally in chains to something that we deserve to exist eternally to. He's going to set us free from that because He wants us to know He's rich. Sometimes when you want people to know you're rich, what do you do? You buy a bigger house, you buy a bigger car, or something. I don't know. Never been there. But this is, this is God's economy deals in a different currency than you and I do. The things that he values, you cannot, you can't put gold or coin to it. Remember, uh, in Acts, Simon the magician wants to buy the Holy Spirit? <laughs> no. No. Jesus gives it freely. He paid for that to happen. He paid for that to happen. By His riches. We didn't have that. We couldn't, we couldn't pay for that. But He paid for it. He paid for it so that He made sure that we would have it. And only he's sufficient to pay for it. So I hope you're starting to see, even just through this first verse, that everything comes through him. And, and the, the thing that turns the wisdom of this world on its head is that it's coming through the suffering servant. You see, that, that through afflictions and grief and suffering, he is given the kingdom. He's given the keys, and he shares those. He, he is righteousness, and he gives that. Jesus is, is looking for a satisfaction. He's looking for a, a, the spoils of a victory that we as humans probably don't value enough or understand the value of. You know how when you're a parent, some of you, and you realize that <laughs> your kids should value things that they don't, and so you try and teach them the importance of those things and why they are so much more valuable than the thing that they're wanting, the shiny thing or whatever it is. Like, no, you actually want this. Like, their, their even desire for good things is ruined by sin and so they would rather have a piece of gum instead of like 
a steak, you know, or whatever the case may be. I don't know. But that's us. The, the value of heavenly things is foreign to us. We only know time and space and what those things present to us. We really don't get outside of that until, until the scales fall from our eyes and we are confronted with the absolute irresistible glory of Jesus. Then, then we know but not until then. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall, be, he shall see and be satisfied. That word for see is, is pretty literal. It, it's, it, he's actually going to have physical sight of the prize that he's looking for. When we're, when we're dealing in Christianity, we're talking about the empty tomb, the resurrection. We're talking about heaven to come. We're talking about things we can touch and taste and feel and see. We're not talking about some spiritual, mystical elevation of our souls and we're flying around as these kind of transparent figures. No. We, look, we are created this way by God to see, to feel, to touch, to smell. That has unfortunate consequences sometimes in this life, but it's going to have glorious consequences. The, the reality of the things to come. But first there's going to be anguish because there is sin, because there's problem, because we, we cannot um, be good in and of ourselves or desire good in and of ourselves. We'll seek to define that any way that we can outside of God until we see Him. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. So he's going to be satisfied. He's on the cross, and he's staying there on his own account because he knows that he will be satisfied through that. What's he satisfied with? Think, think about what is God satisfied with? Only perfection. And if Jesus is bearing the iniquities of the many that he's going to make righteous, then his satisfaction is seeing them made righteous. And he knows only if I stay here are they going to be made righteous. That's what he's about. And he tells us that much. He said, I came not to serve at this point in time. I, I, I came not to be served at this point in time. I came to serve. I came because you have a great need. And unless I meet that need, it won't be met for you. So you're going to have to let me do it. You're going to have to swallow pride and realize that unless Jesus makes you righteous, you're not righteous. You can't be. It's hard to hand that over, isn't it? that perceived power that we have to make ourselves good or to make ourselves acceptable before God. We don't like to hand that over. We like to think some way, somehow, we can remedy this, we can get out of debt, and we can be okay with Him. We're not. 
that far gone. Well, you don't understand the depths of your depravity. You don't understand that Ephesians 2 calls you spiritually dead because you're spiritually dead. You don't get up from that unless... See, that's what we like about the gospel, right? There's always that other part. (laughs) We have to accept the fact that what we're facing in the mirror is uh, bad news when we face God. But there's another, there's an answer to that. There's a remedy for that. And it all came because God wanted to make known to the universe His riches and grace and mercy. So if you want to call God an egomaniac, I don't know exactly what you mean by that, but I'm sure glad that He wanted to show that off. Because if He didn't, there are no recipients of that grace and mercy. They're just recipients of wrath. Children of wrath. Enemies. So Jesus knows what He's looking forward to. It says, by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. What knowledge? Well, if you read Hebrews, you find that he's this great high priest that sympathizes with us in our sins. He knows what it is to be tempted. He doesn't know what it is to fall prey to that. But he knows what it is to be tempted. He knows what we're dealing with. He knows that we are helpless and hopeless and without a shepherd before God. That's the knowledge that he has. And also he has knowledge of of what would be best for us if we could think clearly unaffected by sin. And so he knows what to do. He knows the will of the Lord. And as the righteous one, the servant of God, he subjects himself to that will in the flesh to sympathize with those whose iniquities he will bear. When I go back and I read Isaiah 53, I, I just am blown away. How could the Pharisees ever think that they had a righteousness that was acceptable before God? He's talking about only one, the righteous one. You, you, you think that they probably inserted themselves like, okay, through my teaching, through, through me being a rabbi, I'm going to make many people righteous. No. We're, we're looking for a Messiah. Guys, we're looking for one. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Think of this as Jesus winning a great victory, a great battle. Okay? And so that portion there, that's the spoils of war. That's what he's won. And what's he do with that? He divides it with the strong or with the numerous, right? All of those that he has made righteous. And that's obviously that that portion 
is that eternal righteousness before God, that inheritance of the kingdom of God through His righteousness. He shares that. That in Romans 8, you can read, we are counted as co-heirs, provided we suffer with Him. He's the suffering servant. If we're going to follow after Him, what do we expect? So, we, in, the inheritance of the kingdom. Some of you may have received or are going to receive large inheritances in your life. But, can, can you put a number on the kingdom of heaven as an inheritance? No. I, I, I cannot fathom. Because we read it as, as being illuminated not by the sun in the solar system, but by the sun in glory, S-O-N. What? Streets of gold, seas of glass, which personify a, a, a perfect peace, stillness. No, no pain, no grief, no, just the presence of the glory and blessing of God. I don't know what that is. Perfectly. We experience it dimly here, but perfectly. And, and without opportunity for it to fail or be interrupted. Y- your mind doesn't even understand the possibility of something um, that can't go away, right? But it can't. So what Jesus wins for you, you spend your days counting the value of it. And then the fact that he would divide that spoil with you. I think the better interpretation there for that word strong in the ESV is probably numerous. Right? Just so we're reminded, like, okay, we're not worthy of him to divide that with us. Right? We're just part of that group. That he chose to divide it with. And he goes off into saying why. How he won. How did he win? He poured his soul out to death. And was numbered with transgressors. That doesn't sound like the way to victory. You know when you read the letters to the Corinthians. I want you to understand something about Corinth. Corinth valued strength. Corinth valued intellect. Corinth valued riches. Corinth valued sex. Corinth valued pleasure to the, to the nth degree. So when Paul is speaking to them, he is trying to remove them from valuing the things of the world and, and letting the gospel turn it on its head and say, look, it all depends on the one who was slain. In fact, he says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus isn't crucified and risen, buried and resurrected, then we have no hope. Then he's telling them, that means you have no hope in the things that you value in your culture. They're not going to do anything for you. You're dealing with a sovereign cosmic power that will destroy those things. So Jesus wins because he poured out his soul to death, being numbered with transgressors. He bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. 
So, Romans says, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. In fact, He lives to make intercession for them. You know what that means? That means He is presenting Himself with His scars, always at the right hand of the Father. So if Satan were to come before Him, like in Job, and say, well, actually, God presented Job to him. But if, but if Satan were to come and accuse the brethren, because he lives to do that, right? He wants to do that. that. That accusation falls on deaf ears because Jesus is right here. Right here. My right hand. I don't know. My, yeah. So all he's got to do is take a look over here. Oh, I paid for that. Yeah. What else do you have, Satan? He just sits there in peace with the Father, presenting himself as the lamb who was slain. And you understand that's enough. That's enough. That's all you need. You know, when, when I've seen some of you come to faith and, and some of you that have been to faith for a while, remember back to when you first came to faith when you were first saved by God, you weren't, uh, you didn't have a perfect theology, did you? You didn't have absolute airtight doctrine, did you? You didn't uh, have great spiritual disciplines in your life, did you? You didn't read the Bible every day, did you? You didn't pray all the time, did you? And you're getting to that point. He's making you holy. He will not leave you unholy he will make you holy but he he may he justified you righteous for all time and he took you in whatever condition you were and he made that pronouncement based on the sacrifice of his son who identified himself with you while you were still weak at the right time christ died for who the ungodly the transgressor Hebrews 7.25, Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. He makes intercession for them. He prays for you. And you know how His praying works? He just looks over to the left to his father. That's the access that he has. That's why I'm so sad at our Roman Catholic friends who think that they got to go through Mary or one of the saints. My intercessor sits at the right hand of God. So if you're ever tempted to believe that you're removed from, from the, the, the righteousness of Jesus based on your transgression or your stumbling along the way, I, I would ask that you would please take heart and remember Romans 8, 34 and Hebrews 7, 25. Jesus is your righteousness. And, and John recognizes this in 1 John by telling us, hey, you sin? Well, that's true. If you say you don't sin, then you're a liar. So then, and I'm paraphrasing here, so then go to the Father and repent and confess your sins and he is faithful and just to forgive you based on what 
based on the fact that you're one of his righteous. Those sins were paid for. So he can forgive you. It's not like he's just like, yeah, I'll just, just wipe it off. I'll just forget about it. No. He's committed to justice. So your sins got paid for on Good Friday. And your inheritance got sealed on Sunday. And then Jesus just gives that to you. And the response, whenever that takes place, transformation. New birth. He gave you righteousness when you weren't righteous. So he made you something that you weren't, which is in his power to do. So you are. And now walk in that. Jesus tells those that he saves, right? He says, go sin no more. There's holiness. There's power to do it. Power to live it. So please, please, remember how he identified himself with you and remember what you're promised because of that. And then live in hope. I know this world is the way it is. I live here. I still have kids to raise through it. But I have a hope that transcends everything that I see. And a God who brings glory at all times and goodness at all times and through everything. So hope in God through Jesus. Respond to him now and then we'll stand and sing together.